Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page a podcast featuring the fiction, poetry, and nonfiction of the Stanford writing community. In each episode, a writer will read from their work and engage in a craft conversation with me. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Lydia Conklin is an assistant professor of fiction at Vanderbilt University. Previously, they were the Helen Zell Visiting Professor in Fiction at the University of Michigan. They've received a Stegner Fellowship in Fiction at Stanford University, a Rona Jaffe Writers Award, three Pushcart Prizes, among others. Their fiction has appeared in Tin House, American Short Fiction, The Southern Review, The Gettysburg Review, The Paris Review, and elsewhere. Their story collection, Rainbow Rainbow, was published in June 2022 by Catapult in the U.S. and Scribner in the U.K. Pioneer. The Oregon Trail ran from the back entrance of Bridge Elementary down through the schoolyard to the edge of the woods. Cones marked the journey. Not the satisfying soft cones that squish down with your body weight, but hard plastic cones, prim and pointed as shark teeth. The cones looped around the tree line to the right, and that's all Coco and the rest of the Culver family could see from the starting point. Who knew where the trail went after that? There were dangers Coco had heard, though she didn't know exactly what. When Miss Harper had passed out the simulation's rainbow-coated biography cards last week, Coco had not been assigned to the Culver family. Her lemon-yellow card listed her as the matriarch of the Bell family, who had lived right here in historic Lexington, Massachusetts. Coco couldn't bear to be a matriarch. While the class wandered around collecting their families, Coco asked Devon, the Bell patriarch, if she could be a child in the Bell family instead. We already have two children, Devon said, and there can't be children without a matriarch. Sure there can, said Coco. The matriarch could have died. They'd make up some woman who'd long since perished, recalling her benevolence could pass the time on the trail. You want to be dead, asked Devon. No, Coco said. I just don't want to be the bell matriarch. I want to be a bell child. Why? Coco wouldn't say so to Devon, but she was uneasy in dresses and skirts. The wind could catch the fabric and expose the part of her she hated most that felt so wrong and that she pretended had withered off her. In the role of a child, she'd be an 1800s tomboy. As matriarch, there was no option. She'd have to look like a full woman. Ever since Coco's body had started developing a few months ago, she focused hard on the mildew on the ceiling while she washed herself in order to forget her body. Only when the water was dirtied and lathered with soap could she bear to look down. I don't have the right clothes, she said. Miss Harper said the girls could staple a sheet, Devon said, a long sheet like touching the ground. Wouldn't it get dirty? Coco pictured herself as a bedraggled angel, Devon shrugged. At first, Coco considered not traveling the Oregon Trail at all. She'd never played sick before, and that seemed like the type of trick every kid should pull once. But missing the day would be a crazy move. 
Coco loved Miss Harper and would never lie to her. But beyond that, the Oregon Trail was the culmination of the fifth graders' hard work through Bridge Elementary, where you got to be a pioneer like those who traipsed around Plymouth Rock. Her classmates had chattered about the day since kindergarten, when they'd first glimpsed the wagons pulled through the field by what looked like small adults. All through middle and high school, the Oregon Trail would be reminisced about as the pinnacle of their education. The day before the Oregon Trail, Coco asked the other families in Miss Harper's class if she could join up with them. Do you need a baby? She asked the Murdochs and the Hancocks, the Bakers and the Blackthorns, or an adolescent? No, they said, if they bothered with her at all. Even though it was still regular school until tomorrow, the families were already insular and protective, clumping around desks between subjects. Aren't you a matriarch yourself? the Blackthorn matriarch asked. I don't want to be, said Coco. I want to be a kid. That's stupid. Miss Harper says that we have to accept our station. Yeah, said the Blackthorn son, who blew his nose on his math worksheets. Matriarchy is an incredible honor. Women rule. Want to trade, Coco asked. Doy, no. None of the girls assigned as daughters were interested in becoming matriarchs, or at least they wouldn't admit it to Coco. The best option was to join the Culver family, who offered her the role of an ox. You can pull our wagon, said Alex, the Culver family patriarch. If you can find another ox, we'll yoke you. It'll be super. What she wanted to be was a boy, like Devon or Alex, but nice. She wanted to wear short pants and follow behind a party, providing for anyone who was hungry. She wanted to be a smooth-faced, short-haired, colonial boy. At home that night, Coco stuffed yellow felt triangles with dry grass for horns and affixed them to the cap of her headgear. She prepared a poncho that simulated the powerful shoulders of an animal and tied a piece of rope to her belt for a tail. Coco, her mom said, I thought you were a matriarch. Lately, Coco hated the sound of her own name, which was like a pet's name or the name of a girl with makeup in a Western saloon, embarrassingly girlish, the verbal equivalent of balloons stapled to her chest. She twitched like she'd been hit. I used to be. You look, you look like, I don't want to say it. What? Coco struggled to speak clearly. Although her headgear was for night use only, she'd hooked the mouthpiece into the metal tubes on her molars. Otherwise, the cap didn't stay taut on her head. What do I look like? Her horns flopped over her eyes. Her mom didn't answer. The next day, all four fifth grade classes lined up at the head of the Oregon Trail. Each class was divided into six families of three or four members. People were meticulously dressed. The matriarchs wore full hoop skirts and aprons, bonnets and bodices with puffy sleeves, colonial dirt rubbed purposefully on the hemlines. The fathers and uncles wore leather vests and hats, the boys wore breeches. The families pulled red wagons and garden carts and wheelbarrows to which they'd attached hula hoops with sheets over them like genuine covered wagons. Everyone must have been gathering materials since kindergarten. Coco snuck between the families to Mr. Bennett's class and Miss Goldberg's class and Mrs. Hedrow's class. Everyone stared. Are you a dog? Someone asked, with headgear. Are you an alien? You look gay, said Devon, the bell patriarch, who stood with a radio flyer and two motherless children. What do you mean? Coco asked. Like a gay person? Ever heard of one? They're actually real. It's sick. He chuckled to himself. See, every girl here is wearing a dress, even the daughters. He whipped his arm around to indicate the flapping sheets and costume dresses. So? 
You're wearing stretch pants and a poncho and ears. I'm an ox. She sounded proud, as though the role were her idea. An ox, one of her ex-children said. Coco's ex-children were Peter and Marley. Peter was pale and smelled like the sawdust the janitors threw down when someone was sick on the floor. But Marley was actually popular. Why hadn't she stepped into the role of matriarch? Last week, Marley had said Coco was chubby and stupid, that the headgear tubes on her molars poked into her cheeks and made her look part robot. Marley accosted Coco at the water fountain with a mechanical voice. Robot Coco is a big fat dumbbell. Peter orbited Coco in a separate sphere. While Coco tried and failed to make friends with whomever she could hook, Peter was satisfied alone. Whenever she talked to him, he smiled the wan smile of a beleaguered businessman and nodded. It's just, Coco said, I'd rather be an ox. She found the Culver family at the end of the row. The Culver patriarch, Alex, stood with the Culver matriarch, Victoria, before a loaded plastic wheelbarrow. They had no children, but still preferred Coco act as their ox. Where are your rations? Alex asked, indicating the bed of the wheelbarrow, which was filled with baskets. The baskets held naked loaves of supermarket bread, unshucked ears of corn, plastic containers of dry oatmeal. I expect every member of the Culver family to contribute to our stock. I brought flour, said Victoria, who wasn't the smiling type. She wore a dark dress and a bonnet cinched around her face. Sorry, said Coco. I didn't know oxen fed their families in colonial times. Alex glared and passed her the handles of the wheelbarrow. I can see we need to break you. Mr. Bennett's class and Miss Goldberg's class filed down the trail. The Culver family marched. The wheelbarrow, full as it was of grain, was exceedingly heavy. Coco had to rest the handles on her back and hunch over so she was nearly crawling. Other families, none of whom had oxen, shared the burden of their wagons and wheelbarrows. No one else had rations. Alex swallowed handfuls of oatmeal and hunks of bread as he walked. Coco only hoped he'd keep at it and lighten the load. Halfway to the woods, the weight of the wheelbarrow increased significantly, and Coco dropped to her knees in the grass. Mush, Victoria cried from her new position atop the wheelbarrow. Coco pushed back up to her feet and braced to bear her new load. The first official obstacle on the Oregon Trail was disease. They arrived at a sign shaped like a gravestone that read, Disease. A ghost popped up from behind the sign. I am the spirit of multiple diseases, said the ghost. Some of the families screamed, but it was obvious from the Long Island accent and red plastic glasses worn over the eye holes in the sheet that the spirit of multiple diseases was Miss Goldberg. She pointed a long finger at random family members. Dysentery, she said, yellow fever, dysentery, scarlet fever, yellow fever, scarlet fever, dysentery. The chosen family members grabbed their hearts. Both Bell children were picked for yellow fever. Coco was given scarlet fever. Victoria, in the wheelbarrow, was selected for dysentery. Now, Miss Goldberg said, if your name starts with a letter between A and E, your disease is mild. You survive to live another day. Congratulations. Shrieks of laughter and manic clapping rose among the mild sufferers. Coco's heart lifted, though she didn't join the cheers. If your first name begins with F to O, your disease is moderate, you live. 
The group of moderates included Coco's ex-child, Marley. She and the other moderate sufferers celebrated. Ah, said Miss Goldberg, but wait. You live, but unlike the mild sufferers, you do not escape unscathed. For the remainder of the journey, you must march with one leg dragging. The choice of leg is up to you, but it must always be behind you. Marley said, that's bull. And now for P to Z, said Miss Goldberg. Are you children prepared for your fate? Oh, God, moaned Victoria from the wheelbarrow. I don't want to limp all day in the sun. Victoria wouldn't be doing much limping, perched as she was on the rations. Even if both her feet were struck down, Coco would keep yanking her along. Severe sufferers, Miss Goldberg said, you are dead. Please step forward. Victoria deserted the wheelbarrow, lightening the load so fast that Coco's back snapped straight. Coco's ex-child Peter also marched forward, along with several other sufferers. They stood before Miss Goldberg. Join your mass grave. The severe sufferers lay down in front of the gravestone sign, the bottoms of their feet wagging at the survivors. Coco tried not to rejoice at their fate, smiling with her headgear hurt anyway. March on, brave pioneers, Miss Goldberg said to the remaining party, but march with heavy hearts. The Oregon Trail wound down to the rim of the woodlands. There, the party turned and marched along the tree line. Past the monkey bars and swing set, a creek cut through the playground. The creek was three inches deep, and children were forever damming it up, opposed for some reason to its free flow. Full of rocks and pine needles, the creek was rendered even shallower than its already pathetic potential. But still, parents rallied against it, claiming children could drown in an inch of water. Coco had squatted at the creek before, placing her feet as close as possible to the surface. Thin water slid over mud, blurring her vision. All she'd have to do was push her nose in. Mrs. Hedgerow appeared at the other side of the creek. Halt, party! Her breasts and stomach bubbled under a garment of blue rubber. She'd stapled toy fish to her outfit like a kind of mother river. Kudos, Mrs. Hedgerow said. You have reached the good stone waterway. That's just the creek, Alex said. Big whoop. It is a giant whoop, young man, Mrs. Hedgerow said, for you must manage a crossing. I know how to cross it, said Alex. That's so easy, it's stupid. He leaped onto the wheelbarrow. Coco was ready this time and didn't fall. Mush, called Alex. Mush, ox. Coco stiffened. The whole living fifth grade class watched. She hated when people stared. They must see something she couldn't, and the attention itched. Even so, she set her feet in the good stone waterway and dragged Alex and the rations to shore. Once safely across, she rotated the wheelbarrow to face her classmates, careful not to feel pride. All she had done was what Alex had forced her to do. From behind her, he tossed a wedge of bread at the unlucky souls on the far shore. The chunk landed in the creek, swelling below the surface like a hunk of flesh. Mr. Culver, please settle down, said Mrs. Hedgerow. Remember, you are a pillar of this community. I am, asked Alex. Consult your biography card, young man, and you will find you are a member of the local council and a well-respected truth teller. None of the fifth graders had read their biography cards. They were too hard. All Coco had managed of hers was Eleanor Bell as a most curious and intriguing lady of the middling fiscal class before she gave up. 
I regret to say that Mr. Culver has indeed chosen the legitimate route across the Goodstone Waterway. I did not know you children were issued oxen this year. Anyone else in possession of an ox may step forward at this time. No one did, so Mrs. Hedrow gave the signal for the crossing to continue. She narrated the travails of each family. Whole parties were sent back halfway through after their wagons buckled and their families drowned. The Blackthorn son was sucked dry by leeches. The Murdoch patriarch contracted giardia and perished when he was already on the other side, observing the Baker family crossing. Certain individuals were singled out as drowners, like Coco's ex-child, Marley. "'Your limp handicapped you,' Mrs. Hedrow said. "'Well, duh,' said Marley. "'I mean to say it killed you.' By the end of the crossing, Mrs. Hedrow had killed 30 additional family members. She herded them off and left the depleted party to continue on. Each family had lost at least one member. The peace of the insular groups had snapped, and now they had to function as an unwieldy whole. Coco didn't know if they could manage— Maybe, for the first time in the history of Bridge Elementary, the pioneers would fail. Alex stood up on the wheelbarrow, which waggled painfully in Coco's grip, the weight shifting as he sought balance. Forward, party, he said. We must press on. The families lined up behind Alex and Coco. Now that Alex was exposed as an ox-owning pillar of the community, the party was eager to follow him. Past the creek was a multi-purpose field. Over the years, Coco had uncovered baby turtles in the field, a nest of condoms, a gold ring. The grass was long. You could find anything in it. Keep to the tree line for cover, said Alex, though the orange cones ran a haywire path through the center of the field. The families hadn't gone 200 feet past the creek when Mr. Bennett jumped from the forest directly in front of the Culver family wagon. He wore grease paint smeared up his cheeks, a suede coat with jangling tassels, and a cardboard headband with stapled feathers. The feathers were each a foot long, the most vibrant blues and yellows and scarlets. If they were real, they would have been exceedingly valuable due to their size and color, but Coco recognized them immediately as craft feathers, virtually worthless. You're under attack, Mr. Bennett announced. Who would dare attack us, asked Alex. The Featherweather tribe, said Mr. Bennett. Alex's face twisted angrily. Ha, who is it, Miss Harper? Mr. Bennett grinned as dead family members poured from between the trees. Each dead pioneer had their own headband and their own feather. As they advanced, they stirred up the pine scent of the forest. There were more of them than there were living pioneers, and they were armed. Every member of the Featherwither tribe carried a homemade bow fashioned from a stick and a string. The bows were serviceable for shooting kindling, though their power was dubious. Victoria led the pack, her face obscured by inelegant swaths of paint. Die, die, she cried, shooting kindling from her bow. Anyone struck in the chest is considered dead, said Mr. Bennett. The tribe poured among the pioneers, kindling bounced off their chests and backs. Coco dropped to four legs. Alex tumbled off the wheelbarrow and rolled underneath. The crippled sufferers were felled first. Some pioneers leaped in front of the arrows, perhaps preferring to join the exciting band. Coco prayed she wouldn't be shot. She needed to complete the trail. Between bobbing feathers and twigs hurtling through the sky, she peered west across the schoolyard. 
She was a true pioneer, one ocean behind her and another one she'd never seen and might never reach ahead. She didn't want regular school to resume. She wanted to survive, to stay in the game. Mr. Bennett dragged the corpses out of danger. Victoria pillaged the Culver family wagon, munching through loaves of bread and shoveling dry tapioca and wheatina into her mouth. Marley and Peter, Coco's ex-children, surrounded her. So you won't be our mother? asked Marley, aiming a sharpened twig at Coco's underbelly. You're too good for us, huh? Yeah, huh? asked Peter. You'd rather be livestock than our mother, huh? You'd rather be on your hands and knees and like pooping in the grass, huh? Marley's eyes were wet as she stuttered out huh after huh, like she was genuinely asking, will you be our mother? Why aren't you our mother? But Marley thought Coco was a fat, stupid robot. Coco flattened down so her chest met the grass and no one could strike her. She stuck her nose in the dirt, facing a smudge of brown. A twig landed on her back so lightly it was almost loving. She'd survive, no matter what. When the massacre ended, all but a handful of pioneers had died. Alex was alive, having evaded the tribe under a wagon. Devon, the bell patriarch, was also alive, as were a few scattered matriarchs and patriarchs. All the children were dead. The band met in the center of the field, which was littered with arrows. Only seven pioneers remained. How far do we have left? asked Coco. Shut up, Ox, said Alex. Oxen don't discuss. Coco shielded her eyes from the sun. The path swung through a patch of milkweed around to the front of the school. The markers were farther apart the longer you traveled the Oregon Trail. The teachers must have run low on cones. We need rations, the Blackthorn Matriarch said. We're starving. Get your rations then, said Alex. We don't have any, said the Blackthorn Matriarch. Yeah, said a kid in another class. We don't got none. Well, you can't have ours. Alex turned to Coco. Ox, guard the rations. But they're hungry. Coco didn't get what the big deal was. She wasn't hungry, but if other pioneers were, they should eat. The Culvers had so much food, albeit dry, flavorless food. No, said Alex. They're fine. We're hungry, said the Blackthorn family matriarch. We're hungry, said Devon. Devon and the Blackthorn matriarch approached the Culver family wagon. We're hungry, they chanted. We're hungry, hungry, hungry. The other living party members joined the chant. Wait, said Coco. We'll never eat all this. Devon and the Blackthorn matriarch had been nasty to her in the past, but so had almost everyone at Bridge at some point. Coco tore off a chunk of loaf and held it out to Devon, who jammed it in his mouth. Alex grabbed Coco's wrist. That's Culver family food, he said, not ox food, not community food. Alex twisted Coco's wrist as if to snap it off her body and throw it into the wagon for an extra ration. You're gay, he said. He smirked at Devon, and they laughed. I know, right, said Devon. You're worse than gay, Alex said. You're not even a person. You're an ugly ox with ox balls. You're a gross animal. The party chanted, animal, animal. Coco backed up against the wagon as they approached. Gripping the bread as a shield, Coco wondered if she actually was an animal. That explained why she didn't feel like anyone else at school. She certainly wasn't normal. The party closed in. 
Kids held rocks above their heads, the broken handle of a wagon, a bent length of hula hoop, a torn sheet flapping in the air. Animal, they said, animal. But Coco hadn't chosen to be an ox. If she'd been allowed to be a boy on the Oregon Trail, everything would have worked out. With all the funny costumes, the marshmallow wagons and false names, maybe her new look would have escaped notice. She'd changed slowly after that. A baseball cap, a haircut, a nickname. Devin's fingertips reached Coco's chest. She screamed. The scream wasn't a kid's scream or a pioneer's scream. It was wild and wet and injured, like something you'd hear in the backwoods, but only from a distance. Devin retreated on the lawn. What's your problem? Alex asked, sounding like he didn't want to know. Then someone behind them said, Greetings, party. The moment she spoke, in that voice that could have been set to music, Coco recognized Miss Harper. The pioneers turned to face this final spirit. I am the spirit of personal dissonance, Miss Harper said, from under her wave of crispy silver hair. The Blackthorn matriarch backed up, spilling fistfuls of flour like snow over the feet of the surviving party. Doesn't sound scary, Alex said. Don't even know what that is. Well, said Miss Harper, I'm surprised you don't know what dissonance is, because you, young man, are the cause of it. But I'm a pillar of this community, said Alex. Not anymore. Miss Harper twirled a twig in Alex's face. Lie down. You were shot with a musket by the bell patriarch. Ha, said Devin, gotcha. Alas, said Miss Harper, not before the bell patriarch was mortally wounded by the Blackthorn matriarch's bayonet, which she then, in misery, turned on herself. Miss Harper narrated the deaths of the three pioneers from another class. That was the last of them, six pioneers slumped in the clover with their eyes shut. I'm not ready to die, Coco said. It's all right, Coco, said Miss Harper. You don't die. Winning was this easy, but she wasn't even proud. She took a breath. That's not my name anymore. Miss Harper looked confused, but soon her expression settled. The game's over, honey. She set her hand on Coco's spine to guide her back to school. Really, the end of the simulation was just the beginning. Coco knew that now. Not even Miss Harper could help her. She pulled away and turned to face the yellow field, the milkweed, the curved path of cones. The sun was a low, white hole in the sky. She would go on her journey now. She would set off. Hi, Lydia. Thank you for being here on Off the Page. Thank you so much for having me. So the first question I want to ask is, obviously, one, what was the inspiration for the story? And then two, did you, in fact, when you were in fifth grade, have a real life Oregon Trail simulation in your class? Yeah, so yeah, the answer to both is kind of the same because I did have that simulation and I did choose to dress as an ox because I felt so much discomfort at the idea of dressing as a female character. But a lot of the way the actual simulation played out wasn't true. Like it wasn't as gory and violent as as in the story in real life. It was kind of just haphazard, I think. It's like a really disturbing thing to make kids do all that 
death and violence. I mean, it reads as kind of funny in the story and how extreme it is. Yeah, I know. I think most of that was my addition. I feel like we mostly just processed around the school in our outfits and that was that. But yeah, I added all of that disease and death and suicide and murder all added into it. I guess I was trying to I don't know how conscious it was at the time of writing, but trying to show kind of the hardships ahead in adulthood in general, but especially, you know, Coco's adulthood, like facing a life as what we can tell a trans person and just what what is to come. I wanted to sort of implant that in the simulation. Well, what I thought was so amazing about this story is that it kind of takes on two masquerade or role-playing at the same time, right? The role-playing of the Oregon Trail simulation and then the role-playing or performance of gender and lets them overlap and, and intertwine and kind of become metaphors for one another. And I'm curious, like, is that how the idea for the story occurred to you? Like looking back at that experience from your childhood and thinking that's a metaphor, that's a way to talk about this young person's experience of transness, of dysphoria? Or did you not necessarily realize those resonances until after you had written it? I think a lot of that came after because how it started was just me being like, what was a moment of severe discomfort? And it was this moment because I think, especially if you're transmasculine, you can kind of get away as dressing like a boy and even had short hair looked like a boy and whatnot and and it was all right to a degree I mean not 100% all right but like you could get away with wearing pants and a shirt but if you're you know in colonial times you couldn't so as soon as we had to dress in in colonial times outfits that was when it was like oh everyone else here is super comfortable putting this outfit on but I'm not so I guess it's because of that old-timey performance of gender being so much more heightened than the one in, you know, the 80s or 90s. I guess it's the 90s when the story takes place. But I think the perfor- yeah, the performance of gender was at the heart of the discomfort, but I wasn't thinking of the pageantry of gender versus the pageantry of the trail until later when I sort of got into the nuance of it. Was it a challenge to write about the experience of gender discomfort and estrangement from the POV of a child, a young person in what seems to be like a pre-internet era, and you writing this as an adult writer with, you know, a different sort of awareness? Was it hard to get into that mindset and stay true to it? Yeah, it was a little bit hard. I actually can't remember. There used to be a part in it where Coco glimpses like a special on trans people on TV, but I think it ends up getting cut. But that was probably a little bit too much of me like putting the hand of the future into it because, yeah, the truth was there was no words for any of this at the time that I was aware of. And actually, even when I wrote the story, which was like 11 years ago, it was so much less in the discourse than it is now. It's for better and for worse because there's definitely more awareness, but there's also more awareness because there's more attacks on rights. Now, I guess it's it's a double-edged sword. Even at the time of writing, it wasn't hugely known, especially the discourses going on now on YouTube and whatnot with young people wasn't happening. So 
because of that, it wasn't as hard to sort of stay into that mindset because it was still kind of the mindset of the culture was like, this isn't really a thing we care about. And it's like a freakish thing that's frightening or weird or whatever. Like there would just be like a Barbara Walters special on like a transgender child. That would be like the extent of it in the media would be like almost like parading around like, oh, look at this weirdo or something. But yeah, I think it was a challenge to to stay in Coco's limited awareness of like what's going on for her. But at the same time, it was based a lot of my experience. I kind of am okay at putting myself back into those moments in general. So it wasn't a super challenge. Well, I think that the close third person is light, you know, I mean, we get Coco's interiority, but it's at just like enough of a level that they don't seem, they seem neither wise or enlightened beyond their years, nor does the story seem like patronizing to them either. I mean, to me, it feels really accurate to what a young kid in the 90s, like what their level of understanding would be. And then the other kids reading her more as gay, you know, like that would be their understanding of someone who didn't want to wear a dress. In general, when writing about transness, is there, are there any like craft issues that you think about in terms of what like pronouns do I want to use for this character? What even name do I want to use? Because it seems like perhaps Coco will not be this character's name in adulthood. In this story or other stories, is that ever something that you grapple with? Like that sort of finessing, like on the one hand, like literary intelligibility, while at the same time being really true to the complexity of these experiences? Yeah, I actually was just thinking about that as I was preparing for this show because I did write this story a while ago and I was like, I wonder if I wrote it now, if I what pronoun I would have put. But the way I generally think of it is even though the story is in past tense, it has an immediacy to it. There's no point of telling in the future. There's no reflection of adult whoever, whatever their name ends up being, thinking about it so because of that I tend to just go with like all right I'm just going to use the name and pronoun the person was using in that moment in time so that I can you know show where they're at but when I talk about Coco I usually use they them and and I do use the name Coco just because there's no other name. But yeah, it is something I think about. And there's another story in my book called Sunny Talks that has a character who's sort of coming into a non-binary identity later in life. And it's in first person. So I was able to skirt the issue of the pronouns in that way. And even their name is only revealed in this warped form that their nephew uses that's kind of like a nickname from babyhood so I was able to kind of get around it in that way. Is it easy or difficult for you to write about these experiences or in some cases write about experiences you've gone through but to treat them as fodder for fiction to write about them in say the third person and to find like and for instance in this story even moments of a lot of humor in what is fundamentally a very heavy and emotional experience is that a question of distance of time or is it more just like a emotional effective distance you have from the material how do you know when something that you've gone through becomes material that you can kind of mold yeah that's hard it's hard to know yeah i think the distance of time 
was a big thing. I mean, I feel like I can always, always am trying to find humor in any situation, but in a certain way, like when I wrote that story, there wasn't as much darkness and heaviness around trans kids and their experiences because, of course, even though they had less resources in some way than now, it wasn't such a scary moment for rights being removed. But I'm not sure if that affects it because I do feel like there's always humor in almost every situation and if it's done in a respectful way but thinking about there is a story in my book that um talks about the pandemic and sort of preparing for top surgery and things that happened in my life very recently and that story come to think of it is one of the least humorous stories in the book and I'm not sure if that's just the tone it took or maybe it has to do with it there being less distance from the material I mean, I think that's kind of like the cliche statement, right? That comedy is tragedy plus time or that that distance from something allows you perhaps to see the humorous possibilities in it. Whereas when it's like right up here, it maybe doesn't present in that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I forgot about that that old statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know who said that. <laughs> it was like Groucho Marx or something. Stepping back a bit to talk about the collection Rainbow Rainbow that this story comes from. You just mentioned you wrote Pioneer 11 years ago. I'm curious, as you're putting together this book of what I imagine are stories that span like quite a quite a chunk of time, what was the process like of sort of combining stories from different eras of yourself as both a writer and a person? Was it easy to tell which ones belonged or was there a lot of deliberation? Yeah, there was a lot of deliberation because I have a slightly possibly manic writing process that involves me writing a lot of material that will never see the light of day like probably 95% of what I write will never see the light of day and I had so many stories and I knew I could only put in a few the first sort of cut I made was I wanted all the stories to deal with queer experience which most of my stories do deal with but there were a few stories that dealt with people who have sexualities that are not totally legible as queer or kind of like on the border or arguably sort of queer-ish, but not in a sort of more direct way. And so I cut those and I cut all the stories about straight people that I for some reason had. And so then... I I realized I had a lot of stories that were covering the same ground, like a lot of stories about like young people in the 90s and only three ended up making it in because I think I was sort of circling some of the material and writing many multiple stories about the same era and the same issues. Right after my MFA 10 years ago, I was like, oh, I have enough stories for a collection. And then I was like, no, there's not enough breadth in this collection to make it a collection, even if there's enough page numbers, I had to kind of branch out more. And so like, for example, the story I mentioned earlier, Sunny Talks, it deals with the protagonist's nephew is a trans YouTuber who has a small amount of fame and they're going together to a trans YouTube convention. And so that story was really important for like the collection congealing because it showed what is it like to be like a queer person now still facing lots of problems like the Pandora's box of social media, like assaults on rights, like the Trump presidency, etc. But in lots of other ways, there's a lot more freedom and a lot more possibility and visibility and connection to community. So 
it kind of worked for this collection having like stories written about and at the time of so many different historical moments because all the kind of laws and sort of vocabulary, discourse, et cetera, around queerness and transness has changed so much since, you know, the first stories here are written from the Clinton administration in the 90s and, like, just the changes that have happened for the good and the bad are so extreme that kind of having that breadth of history in there was important in the end. And did you feel when you were putting together the collection any temptation or did you give in to any temptation with the older stories to edit them at all for sort of what you understood of the material they're exploring now in 2021 two versus five, ten years ago? Hmm, um, not really, because none of the three stories that are that deal with children have any kind of reflective looking back at all so they kind of worked in those gelled moments they're so like sealed in their times that I didn't have to do that it was more like I wanted to add stories that reflected the more current moments having read many of your individual stories over the years that's an incredible thing to think about that span of time from like the 90s to now and to have that whole range covered in one book. Sounds like a great plan. Just circling back to Pioneer for a few more questions. I'm curious if you can remember back to when you were working on this piece, did the structure and sort of arc of the piece evolve a great deal over the course of drafting and revising? I mean, the game itself provides such a great container and sort of clock for the piece. But in terms of what twists and turns happen in the game itself and the way that the kids sort of really gang up against Coco in a frightening way near the end. Was that there from the beginning or did you discover that through a process of drafts? It's sort of weird, but this is one of those rare stories that just came out in a smooth way. And a lot of the stories in the book I did drastic revisions on. Um, But this one, I do remember a few things like that trans special that got cut and like a few little things got tweaked. I think it got toned down a touch when the other kids turn on Coco because it was almost unreal. And I like how, how the game gets a little unreal and it's kind of like a Lord of the Fliesy situation where they're just like the sort of brutality of the game is letting them be even more brutal than they would normally be to Coco. But I do think I had to scale back on it a little bit as I was revising. But the general structure stayed the same because I knew they're going to be the four teachers with their four trials that they would present to the children. Yeah, I mean, I think that the ugliness that's in the final story feels pretty accurate. I mean, kids can be really terrible sometimes. I think it's really remarkable in general as a writer how you're able to write children full stop. I think that's really hard for adult writers to make them neither too simple and innocent nor too knowing and like hyper articulate. And I think this moment also really gets at the way in which for certain young queer people, you know, like that desire to not be looked at and to go unnoticed can instead get iterated as like hyper visibility, right? Because you're the the one not fitting in. And that pisses people off for some reason. Maybe my last question for you is I'm curious how you think about the penultimate beat of the story when Miss Harper spares Coco. 
do you read that as like the teacher understanding that this this is a child sort of in crisis and that's a gesture of benevolence or does it always end with one person alive I actually never have done I only played the computer version I've never done live Oregon Trail (laughs) that's an interesting question yeah I think I did consider that Mrs. Harper took a special interest in Coco and cared about them and was worried about them But in my mind, she doesn't have any idea about the deeper issues. And that's why there's that moment when Coco says that's not my name anymore. And Miss Harper just sort of reads it as being a confusion about whether the game is over or not. And of course, all the kids have different names in the game, too. So I wanted to show that there was someone who cared, but who was very limited in how she could help because she just couldn't access that and there would be no one in Coco's life who could like her mother clearly doesn't yeah I wanted it to be a little hopeful but also complicated yeah and I mean that also feels very real that teacher's not going to be super person and the confusion about the name is like almost a little funny because she's like oh right you're you're you have an oxen name or something (laughs) you know there's always this like conversation about how do you end a short story like does the character need to change or whatever and I think that this story to me seems to end with like the recognition not with the change itself but with like the recognition of the beginning of a journey which feels really real and powerful yeah Yeah, I wanted to show kind of how with queerness, transness, like there can be many years that you deal with it alone or suffer under it alone or or are confused about it. But then once there's this moment of recognition, that's kind of like a lonely and scary, but also possibly exciting moment of, okay, now this is going to be the edge. Yeah, like the crest of change or like the moment when I could really face these things that I've sort of half known. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and Megan Kalfas. Thanks to our production team, Destiny Cunningham, Carolyn Stein, and Tanvi Gupta. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans, Tiffany Naiman, and Melissa Durdahl. Thanks to Patrick Phillips, Christina Ablaza, and Dania Huliganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.